I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the what do you do when you have the world's largest oil reserves and still can't service your debt edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, the FT's U.S. markets editor, Robin Wigglesworth, speaks to Leap Bakite and Mitsu Gulati about Venezuelan debt and what's going to happen if they can no longer service it. Robin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. All right, this was a fascinating conversation, but before we talk about anything, uh, we first need to establish who Lee Bakite and Mitsu Gulati are. Well, Lee and Mitu are the uh, McCartney and Lennon of sovereign debt restructuring. Uh, Mitu is uh, a law professor at Duke University, and Lee Bukait is a senior partner at Cleary Gottlieb. And Lee is the lawyer who's helped almost half the countries around the world who've been in financial distress to restructure their debts. So we're talking Russia, Mexico, Iceland, Greece, the Philippines, Indonesia. If you're a country that's facing a bankruptcy, Lee is the guy you call. He is the don of sovereign debt restructuring, and Me Too is his frequent collaborator on a lot of these issues. Okay, uh, and in fact, they have been writing guest posts for FT Alphaville about this very topic. Let's talk a little bit about Venezuela, just to provide the context behind this conversation. Uh, I think if you've been paying attention to the news, you will have at least seen the headlines showing that Venezuela right now seems to be in a kind of all-out collapse. Uh, But give us a sense of just how bad it is. It's exceptionally bad. I mean, the political crisis reared its head over the summer comes against a backdrop of a humanitarian crisis, which is frankly awful. The country has the most amount of refugees leaving the country after Syria. People are actually losing weight because they can't import enough food. Uh, There are medicine shortages, which means that the child mortality rate is going up. And against this is, of course, uh, essentially an economic and financial collapse. Like you said, Venezuela has oodles of oil, but has a very inefficient oil sector and an economy that has frankly been run down completely by the Maduro government and before that the Chavez government under Hugo Chavez. I think the issue is that for so long, this economic system could, and I'm putting this very much in air quotes, work so long as the oil price stayed very high, right? That's right. Once oil prices started to collapse, everything went with it, and it essentially gave the lie to the system as it was before. Yeah. You can paper over a lot of cracks when you're one of the world's biggest oil producers, and oil is going at over 100 bucks a barrel. But when Even before oil prices collapsed, Venezuela's finances looked pretty shoddy. And when oil then suddenly collapsed, then, frankly, it really hit the wall. And for the past few years, Venezuela has been 
fighting an uphill battle and just staying on top of its debts. The weird thing is, of course, you know, whilst the local population is, you know, in many cases, literally starving, they've been paying all the bondholders in full, even as it defaults on payments on medicine and food and, and equipment and all sorts of other things. Uh, and this is a bit of a paradox, but uh, we get into this in the podcast as well. Can we talk about the major players in a sovereign debt restructuring? Because uh, you do get into some of the specifics there. Who are some of the different kind of competing interests uh, who play a role in this? Yes. I mean, that's why sovereign debt restructuring is so fascinating, is you have so many different types of players involved. On the creditor side, let's take them first. Typically, they are people who have bought the bonds of this country, and they can be anything from an insurance company, a pension fund, an asset management firm like PIMCO, or hedge funds. And in some cases, Venezuela itself. To prop itself up, it forced various state entities to buy its own debts. And of course, that you know, kept the show on the road for a little bit, but is now backfiring quite badly. And then you have the government itself, which is also made up of lots of different people with different interests. The problem is getting them all facing the same direction. And that's where people like Lee comes in. He typically works with governments and that the creditors will hire their own lawyer and they sit down and usually most of the time manage to get to some sort of agreement where the creditors say, okay, we will take a 30% haircut or accept the value of our bonds will be 30% less and you guys get some debt relief and we get the show back on the road. In Venezuela, it's going to be very hard because people just don't trust the government. And this is an increasingly autocratic government that even the U.S. is now branding openly a dictatorship. And that just means that people don't trust it. You also need to trust if you're going to extend the loans that say if the creditors say Venezuela, well, you can pay us back over 30 years or so. You kind of need to trust the economic statistics that are going to come out over the next 30 years. And if Argentina's statistics were bad back in the day, then Venezuela's are virtually non-existent. So then you need the IMF coming in. The IMF typically lends money to countries in distress and therefore gets to play almost like a referee between the creditors and the government on the other side. They look at the finances, they bless the forecasts and things like that. The problem is the IMF has been chucked out of Venezuela for quite some time. So it's going to be very hard to get them back and get them on top of everything very quickly. One last question before we get to the interview feels almost weird to be talking about uh, sovereign debt in a situation where there is such enormous human tragedy. You know what I mean? Uh, can you talk about some of the kind of social and moral issues that are surrounding this very topic? In other words, that we have on the one hand, these creditors uh, who are wondering if they're going to get their money back. You have a government that has been massively irresponsible that continues to service the debt. And we have a, a situation where we're talking about potential scenarios for restructuring that debt alongside a situation where people are literally going through trash in order to find the remnants of some food that they can find. Yes. I mean, this is the, the paradox in this situation. The odd thing is that Venezuela has not restructured its debts. The, the main reason for that is that they're worried that their only valuable export, oil, could be seized by some hard-nosed, unsentimental creditors as collateral if they do default. The fact of the matter is I think most creditors would quite happily accept an orderly debt restructuring that gives Venezuela debt relief in the long term. They don't want to sit there wondering every month, every quarter, every year whether they're going to get repaid that day. 
but Venezuela has been you know, keeping paying creditors. It's turned this into a bit of a sort of a point of machismo that you know we will pay our creditors. But I think everybody agrees, creditors and quite possibly most people in the government understand that at some point a debt restructuring has to happen because nobody really wants to see the kind of images we're seeing in Venezuela these days. It is a genuine humanitarian catastrophe. Fascinating background, fascinating topic, and a fascinating conversation. So here is Robin Wigglesworth talking to Lee Buckheit and Madhugulati. Enjoy. So, guys, thanks so much for being here. Me too. Maybe you can tell me a little bit how you came up with this idea. I gather it involved alcohol. It did, but that doesn't sound so good. So let's start a little further back. I teach a class on international debt and specifically sovereign debt restructuring. And often, Lee comes down to talk to my students at Duke about how you think about these restructurings. And last semester... We had focused on Venezuela because it seemed like a default was imminent. So one of the questions that the students were thinking about was how to restructure the different types of debts that Venezuela has. Venezuela, as you probably know, has primarily debts of the country and then debts of a major company, their oil company. And both of these debts are roughly about the same size, uh, $35 billion and $30 billion or so. And restructuring the debts of the oil company seemed like it was a particularly onerous task because they had certain contractual provisions that made it very difficult to restructure, and the students were supposed to find a way out. Now, one of the lessons that Lee and I were going to talk to them about the day that Lee came to class was about how, if you're a law student, you shouldn't just read the summary of documents, but you should read the actual contracts. So don't just read the prospectus that most of us have seen, but read what's called the indenture. But I confess, I myself hadn't really read the indenture because it's really long and boring. And so after the class was over and we told the students they should read the indenture, but I hadn't, we decided that we needed a few drinks to read the indenture ourselves. And so we sat down and started reading it, and I remember the look of shock on Lee's face as he read it, and we realized that there was stuff in there that we had not seen and the students hadn't seen. So that's how it began. So, Lee, what did you find in this uh, indenture that uh, shocked or even pleased you so? The principal thing that surprised me was there's a provision in the boilerplate, the standard provisions at the end of the indenture, normally the provision says that the obligor, in this case the PDVSA, the oil company, uh, cannot assign its rights or delegate its obligations under the indenture. But this one said that PDVSA could delegate its obligations to anyone, that is, have someone else take over the obligations with only the consent of a majority, a bare majority, 51% of the holders. Now, for a debt restructure, uh, that's a pretty thermonuclear provision because what it means is that if you get 51% of your bondholders to agree, you can issue new bonds to them, but 
as they leave the old bond, in their last act, as a holder of an existing bond, they agree to amend it to allow PDVSA to delegate its obligations to someone else. So any bonds left in the hands of people who do not participate, known in the jargon as holdouts, uh, any bonds left in their hands will no longer be obligations of PDVSA. They will be obligations of the successor, whoever that is. So I could, for example, have some PDVSA bonds and they restructure and get all, most other bondholders to agree that I'm no longer owed PDVSA money, but PDVSA B or PDVSA 2.0 money. And that could be just, what, an empty shell with nothing in it? Theoretically, yes, theoretically. Uh, but uh, we conclude in the paper that that would be unwise and that the successor ought to be an entity that stands at least some chance of being able to make payments back. What we suggest is that you could have PDVSA say as a condition to its release from its obligation under these bonds uh, to fund the new entity with a percentage of its oil revenues after the price of Venezuelan crude exceeds some threshold level. So if oil returns to its glory days of $100 a barrel, then this new entity would be funded with a portion of those receipts and would have a capacity to make debt service payments. If you did that, those new instruments, if you think about it, will become a pure play on the price of oil. Uh, people will buy them simply uh, in the hopes that uh, oil will recover the strength that it had uh, a few years ago. That, we think, would help in any legal challenge uh, to the overall arrangement. And there will be a legal challenge. There always is. So once you've done the re this uh, restructuring using these exit consents, getting the old bondholders agree to rechange the entire indenture, uh, so what happens then? So you think this will end up in a legal court. Uh, these exigent sense, I mean, what kind of case law is there? I mean, can people just use these willy-nilly, Mito? So I think because of a recent case from the Second Circuit, which is based here in New York, uh, there is a temptation to think that in New York you can use them willy-nilly. But if you go back in time, they're a pretty harsh device because you're having a majority of creditors rob the minority of creditors of certain legal rights and then run away into a more protected class. So courts tend to look at these things quite carefully. And even though the last decision has, has said you can do quite a bit in a case called Marblegate, the history of the cases suggests that you should be very careful. So you could be a greedy debt restructurer who says, I'm just going to give you, as Lee likes to say, a bucket of steam if you don't agree to the deal. I would think that would put you at substantial legal risk where you don't need to put the country at that kind of risk. You put at least something of theoretical value and potentially of great value if oil prices. So when it gets inevitably challenged in court, at least a judge can say it wasn't completely egregiously punitive to uh, creditors. It's not just that. If you put oil warrants into this, 
then the people who are not taking the deal are in effect saying to you, when they come to you and say, we won't take the deal, what they will say to the judge is, judge, we don't think that we should have taken this much of a haircut because we think that Venezuela will do extremely well in the future. So if the judge asked them, why do you think Venezuela will do so well in the future, they would have to say, given that 95% of Venezuela's export revenue is from oil, they would have to say something along the lines of, well, oil prices will rise to $200 a barrel and then we'll all get paid. And so by giving them oil warrants, you're basically saying, okay, you have your judgment about what's going to happen and we're going to give you a new entity that your bet might or might not come through. But we're not completely robbing you of your rights. Robin, this is just one idea. There are a variety of ways that you could set up uh, this new entity and capitalize it or fund it. This is just one. It struck us as an appealing one because it would allow those in the market uh, who like to play about the price of oil to have a very convenient instrument with which to do so. Yes, I mean, it is legally elegant. And I can see some people in the market being attracted to something that you can play oil, but um, you can play oil through oil futures as well in a very clean way. What other solutions are there? I mean, if we step back a little bit, this is how to deal with a particularly knotty uh, PDVSA situation. And that's a state oil company that owns the National Oil Concession. To what extent can you just restructure PDVSA Aside from the Republic of Venezuela, how much do you have to do those two in parallel or in tandem at the same time? Uh, How much can you group them all together or deal with them separately? How do you deal with the holistic situation that Venezuela looks in financially terrible shape? My view is, for practical reasons, you would have to address both at the same time. The practical reasons are, first, to deal with PDVSA or the Republic separately without touching the other, will not give enough debt relief. Second, I think the market would insist on it. The market has historically traded these instruments pretty much as fungible with each other. And you have many institutions that will hold both. And you would not want to confront an argument, let's say, from PDVSA holders, who would say, uh, you're restructuring me, but leaving my colleague the Republic bondholder untouched. Uh, So I'm effectively subsidizing him. You wouldn't want to confront that argument. So for practical reasons, I would think they would do both together. Legally, you don't have to. There's not a cross default that links the bonds of the Republic with PDVSA. So legally, you could do it, but I think practically, you would not wish to. So given that you know it is the state oil company and people have treated it as de facto the Venezuelan state, legally, like you say, there are no cross-default provisions. So given the situation, the dire situation that Venezuela has found itself in, why wouldn't they just say, well, two bad guys? Here, you know, we're taking the oil concession out of PDVSA. We'll transfer it to a PDVSA 2, and creditors and shareholders can fight over the scraps, the carcass of PDVSA that remains, and they have no legal recourse to the government. Why couldn't they do that, me too? So I think two reasons. One, you can't do the PDVSA restructuring unless you get 
at least a majority of the creditors to agree. And as Lee had pointed out, many of these institutions that hold these bonds also hold republic bonds. So you have to play nice with them enough that they enter into the deal. The second question is, why would you leave the republic bonds out unless you didn't need a massive amount of debt relief? And they do need a massive amount of debt relief. In fact, I think the question will be, and I'd be interested in hearing what Lee has to say, it might not be enough to do all of the Republic and all of PETAVESA and leave everything else out. And there is a massive amount of other debt, debts owed to China, Russia. There are these promissory notes that are out there. There are airline receipts. And in those, you know, I talked at the beginning about needing to read the contracts to figure out what the legal terms is. I don't even know where to begin to look for the contracts on those, or even if they have any contracts, or whether, you know, what the Chinese contract says is, if you don't pay us, we send, you know, a battleship. You could, the government could, strip away from from PETAVESA the only thing in PETAVESA that has any value, which is the concession to lift and sell oil. And if you read the PETAVESA offering documents, they highlight this risk very much. They say we're entirely dependent uh, upon the kindness of the government in leaving us with that concession. So there are a variety of ideas, structural ideas, that have been talked about for dealing with PETAVESA. One is the one you mentioned. Strip away the concession, give it to another company, which I, I like to call Nueva PETAVESA, leave old PDVSA as a shell and tell people, fine, you're welcome to keep your bond holdings of the shell. The problem with that is we have a body of law in this country that goes by the name of successor liability. And in effect, this technique has been tried in both the corporate and sovereign context. And it doesn't detain a U.S. judge too long to say that the successor, Nueva Petavesa, is actually legally responsible for Petavesa's debt. There are other structural ideas that have been talked about, ranging from the oh, plausible to the utterly quixotic. Um, so uh, some people say, well, put Petavesa into bankruptcy in Venezuela and then seek recognition of that bankruptcy here under what we call Chapter 15 of our bankruptcy code. And there are a variety of variations of that theme. All of them, I think, would inevitably entail a significant amount of legal risk. You, we will not have seen this uh, type of situation before. And if you look at all of the emerging market countries that have restructured their sovereign debt over the years, many of them have had oil companies, Pemex in Mexico, PetroEcuador in Ecuador, etc. They've not attempted to uh, gin up a bankruptcy of the company that provides most of the earnings for the country, and certainly not commend it to the tender mercies of a U.S. bankruptcy judge. But yes, I mean, this point that, you know, it's not quite the tip of the iceberg, this bonded debt, but clearly there is a lot of other things out there, like these promise, you know, payments they owe to pharmaceutical companies, oil service companies, and above all, Russia and China, who have essentially been funding Venezuela and keeping them afloat for quite a few years. How do you deal with something like that I mean, you've had these situations before where there's a mix of commercial debt, like 
syndicated loans and bonds, and then these bilateral loans. I mean, that must get very political very quickly. I think the architects of this restructuring would be well advised to try to clean the Augean stables. Uh, to deal only with the bond indebtedness, I think, is probably to deal with half or maybe less than half of the aggregate liabilities of of the Venezuelan state. So you have these promissory notes that have been issued to uh, suppliers. You have entities like the airlines that have five to six billion dollars worth of blocked Bolivar deposits. They sold tickets for Bolivars uh, at a time when the exchange rate was six and a half to the dollar. Um, The Bolivars went into a blocked deposit. The exchange rate, the market exchange rate is now 12,000 or whatever it is. The Bolivars still sit there. (laughs) Uh, And you have north of 30 arbitrations against the Republic of Venezuela before this World Bank arbitration body, known by its acronym ICSID, the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, for expropriations and nationalizations that have gone on under the Chavez-Maduro regime. They, too, will represent, in due course, a legal threat. Uh, And therefore, I think the architects of the restructuring would be well advised to try to sweep everyone in. Is it possible to do? Uh, Absolutely. All you have to do for each of these non-debt claimants, crystallize a dollar amount that they're owed, and then say you're welcome to come into the restructuring as though you were a bondholder for that crystallized amount, and you will get whatever consideration we're giving to the bondholder. So we're going to issue new bonds. We'll issue new bonds to you. But is there a risk (laughs) that everybody from, you know, a pharma company owed money for some drugs to an oil service company says, well, actually, no, we're not bonded debt. We want to get paid 100% back. We're owed this by the government. This is a contract. We have this promissory note. Absolutely, there is that risk, and some of them will say just that. And to them, you say, regrettably, we don't have the money to pay you back. So uh, your options are to accept less than the full amount you're owed today or litigate in the hope that you will be able to get all that you're owed not tomorrow but some tomorrow of course you know these oil service companies or pharma companies or food companies don't actually have their own battleship fleet but russia and china do how do you deal with the fact that russia and china are owed so much by venezuela and keeping it aloft i mean can you convince them to restructure their claims Yes. <laughs> they are being paid through shipments of oil now. I would expect in a negotiating room with bondholders that the bondholders would say that if we're going to suffer some discomfort in this restructuring, so should everyone else, including the bilateral creditors. I think it unlikely that the bilateral creditors would ever enter the negotiating room with the bondholders. But since 1956, we've had a system in which bilateral creditors restructure their debt separately. The OECD countries do so under something called the auspices of the Paris Club. Uh, So there's certainly precedent for bilateral creditors to a distressed sovereign granting debt relief, not hand-in-hand with the commercial creditors, but in parallel. Are China and Russia part of the Paris Club? Russia is. China is an observer. I don't think this would be a Paris Club arrangement. This would be 
a direct arrangement with those two countries. And my, my guess is the bondholders would insist that that, that happen. It's, as we say in the paper, uh, likely to be a matter of diplomacy. And just turning to Venezuela's bond debt, the Republic of Venezuela, the government, there's a separate solution or, or possible solution that you've floated on this that you've dubbed the cryonic version. Disappointingly, it doesn't involve the deep frozen Austin powers, <laughs> but it is a very interesting idea. How would you do this? What does this mean? cryonic solution to that. Me too? Well, so one of the big questions that one has to tackle with Venezuela is a function of the litigation that Argentina faced. So as you've written about, and as anybody in this industry knows, Argentina was stuck in litigation for over 10 years against some very aggressive, smart creditors who succeeded in literally bringing Argentina to its knees. Now, Venezuela is in a much worse and more vulnerable situation than Argentina in terms of having assets that people can seize. 95% of its export revenues come from the sale of oil. That means they're tankers running around the world that you can get. You can get injunctions against these from courts all over the world. So you have to be very, very careful that the creditors who do not agree to the deals cannot seize the assets that you need to pay the other creditors. Now, one way to do this is to keep the good creditors in the same basket as the bad creditors, so that when the bad creditors do try to do something, they don't have enough votes to do it. When a country restructures its bonds, it says to all the old bondholders, we're going to give you new bonds worth less money, essentially, or longer, they're repaid over 20 years or 30 years rather than five years. And then they exchange these bonds. So you would take those old bonds that you get in exchange, and rather than just wiping them out, deleting them, you'd keep them in reserve so that you have votes if somebody else tried to sue the country. You'd keep those in reserve in, in the deep freezer, a cryonic solution. Is that how it would work? That's exactly right. So in Argentina, people who exchanged their bonds in 2005 and 2010 and took roughly 30 cents on the dollar, they got new bonds and they went on with their business thinking they were safe and sound. And then when the holdout creditors were really able to get judgments against Argentina with a high level of enforceability... These old bondholders who thought they were safe and sound with their 30 cents on the dollar found that their payments were blocked. And because they had new bonds, and new and separate bonds, they could do nothing about it. So the solution that we came up with was that the new bondholders who have agreed to the restructuring would now, in effect, have the right to convert themselves back into voters with the old bondholders so that they could stop bad things from being done to them by the ones who refused the deal. So the new bondholders would hold these old bonds, not the country itself. So it wouldn't be, let's say, the state of Venezuela has a safe somewhere, a metaphorical safe, stuffed with old Republic of Venezuela bonds. No. Venezuela would get back the old bonds, but would lodge them with a trustee, and pledge them as security for the new bonds. 
So the trustee is now holding these bonds under instructions not to enforce them, or at least not to enforce them while the new bonds are being paid, uh, not to do anything with them except if there are circumstances where the holdout creditors, who remember are holding bonds identical to what's in the trustee's account, attempt to vote to accelerate, uh, to instruct a trustee to enforce, something like that, those old bonds remain alive to that extent. And therefore, if they need 25% to accelerate, they would need 25% of the entire issue. See, the problem with the traditional way of doing these is the old bonds are immediately canceled. And the reason is that the sovereign doesn't want to report it's doubled its debt stock uh, after it issued new bonds. Uh, Cryonics is the science of freezing uh, body parts uh, in the hopes that at some point in the future they can be thawed and and used. I, I think Ted Williams is in this state right now, famous American baseball player. And that's what the old bonds would be. They would essentially be frozen and unfrozen only if, as, and when they're needed to try to block some mischief by the holdouts who are holding those very bonds. But has anybody ever done anything like this before? Do you have any idea whether a judge would accept these these suddenly reheated frozen bonds? Argentina did something like this at the very beginning of its debt crisis in 2002 and three. Some of its bonds were held by local pension funds and institutions, and they swapped those out, but the old bonds were kept in some... I'm a little murky on the details, but they were kept in some capacity. I'm not sure there are other precedents that I'm aware of in the sovereign. It is not a perfect solution, and and you shouldn't think of it as such. It, its utility is going to be limited to situations where the holdouts... Uh, would be unable to take certain actions like acceleration or instructing an enforcement action without the votes of the bonds that the trustee is holding. It is not a perfect protection. Uh, it, uh, It thwarts some mischief, but not all. Obviously, it is a very imperfect world, and there will never be any perfect solutions to any of these issues. But taking a step back... And we've talked about some solutions or possible solutions or fixes to some of the challenges with both Pedavesa and the Republic of Venezuela and the whole messy situation together. But when I look at this, it just looks chaotic. It just looks like there will not be any perfect solutions. Far from it. In fact, there'll be band-aids and fights, legal fights, for years to come. I mean... How do you see this playing out for Venezuela over the next decade or so? Are we going to go full Argentine-style, messy legacy issues for years to come? Or do you think that it's plausible we could have something a little bit better? I mean, me too. What's your gut say? Well, I think the reality is that this will be one of the most difficult and complicated sovereign debt restructurings we have seen in the last 30 years. So all of these solutions, the reason that there is such a variety of solutions and we're trying to have to think about creative ways to do things is because this is so complicated. There are so many different types of debt out there. There's so much debt out there. 
And perhaps the most important factor here is the current government. So my view, and not clear that Lee would agree with me or would be able to talk about this, my view is that it is the utter incompetence and corruption of the current government that has landed us in this situation. And creditors are not going to be willing to give them much debt relief unless they are confident that the new government will take the debt relief and use it for productive purposes. And one way to assure them of that, at least traditionally, has been the involvement of official sector institutions like the International Monetary Fund. And right now, Venezuela has really not interacted with the International Monetary Fund, at least best that we know, for a number of years. They haven't even been able to come in and look at the situation. So absent that key piece of the puzzle, I don't see this being resolved anytime soon. Can you do a debt restructuring in Venezuela without the involvement of the IMF going through the books, the numbers, and doing what they've done for countless of countries before, sometimes controversially, but at least they have experience doing this? Can you do a debt restructuring without that? Can creditors get that safety that, okay, so we're exchanging our sort of PDVSA 2022 bonds for PDVSA 2050 bonds, but at least we know there'll be a PDVSA in 2015 and we believe the numbers. I mean, is this possible or is it? do we need regime change and the IMF involved in a later stage at some point? So I think you could do a debt restructuring. I think it would be a terrible idea for everybody involved except perhaps the current administration that needs a tiny bit of debt relief. And there are a couple of additional factors that I, I think are very important. And your article about Credit Suisse refusing to trade any more Venezuelan bonds is right on point because right now with the removal of the National Assembly and its powers and the replacement with the Constituent Assembly, which is basically a pawn of the current government, it means potentially that any new transaction that's done, say an exchange of bonds to give the government some relief now, is potentially vulnerable in U.S. courts. And remember that all of these bonds and a lot of the prom notes, and I don't know what about the Russian and Chinese debt, a lot of this is governed by U.S. law, specifically New York law. And a new government will say, look, these were not properly authorized. These were not proper transactions. We are not responsible for them. And investors are going to have that in their mind. So you're adding risk upon risk. The current government, already incompetent, not managing things well. So if I give them debt relief, I may just get less money in the future. But on top of that, I have the legal risk that the new bonds that I have are now not even half as good as the old ones. Lee, I know you're somewhat constrained in what you can say about you know the pros and cons of various governments around the world, but you do have a lot of experience working with governments and working with the IMF and debt restructurings. One of the things I keep hearing from the Venezuelan opposition and from, even, frankly, bondholders as a concern is the doctrine of odious debt. So... What is this doctrine? What is odious debt? And is this something that actually has any applicability in the Venezuelan situation? 
odious debt uh, was first articulated in the 1920s to cover a situation in which you have a dictatorial regime, uh, borrows money, uh, does not use the money for any productive purpose for the people of the country. The classic case is the kleptomaniacal regime that steals the money, uh, but signs the state's name to the loan agreement um, and where the creditor knew or should have known that that was indeed going to be the result. That has been referred to as odious debt. There's a limited amount of precedent which says that uh, the citizens of the country, (laughs) when the dictator departs, the citizens of the country should not be responsible morally and perhaps legally for the repayment of those debts. That would not be this case. Not uh, that people won't use the word odious debt or refer to the doctrine, but it has not established itself in international law or domestic law to the point that one could rely upon it as an adequate defense. This would be a much more pedestrian argument that... uh, Under Venezuelan law, the National Assembly, the former legislature, or the the legislature, is required to approve annual budgets. Uh, The last budget they approved ended at the end of last year. They've not approved anything now. Uh, Any new issue of bonds would have to be under a new budget. They have not approved it. The fight will be (laughs) that you now have a constituent assembly that is in the business of rewriting the Constitution and uh, supplanting the old National Assembly. You have a Supreme Court that is prepared to bless the actions of the Constituent Assembly. And so at one formal level, any new bonds issued would be in compliance with Venezuelan law at one formal level to the extent that the Supreme Court of the country will have anointed them. However... There is a significant viewpoint in Venezuela and in the international community that the Constituent Assembly itself is illegitimate, and the argument will be that if it is illegitimate, all of its works will similarly be illegitimate, uh, and therefore you could not rely on uh, their approval as adequate to establish the legality of any new bonds that will be issued. If the situation stopped right now, no further sanctions, no further action, no further international condemnation, I'm not sure how a New York judge would rule on the validity of new bonds that might be issued at this point. But my own instinct is that it's not going to stop. The sanctions that President Trump imposed uh, in the last couple of weeks are not necessarily exhaustive. Uh, He retains the authority to ratchet up those sanctions if he wanted to. And there is a point at which uh, those sanctions would impair the validity and enforceability in a U.S. court of new bonds that might be issued. So we'll see. We'll see. I don't think the the story is nearly over. So odious that easy to say as a political tool, but legally very hard to... It it is the word odious that is so attractive, uh, but it is largely atmospherics. Uh, From the crooked timber of mankind, never a straight thing was made. Me too and Lee, thank you so much for being here today. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much. 
And that is the end of Robin's chat with Lee Buckheit and Mitu Gulati. In a few weeks, we're going to have another episode on the economic and historical background to the Venezuelan tragedy, so stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is country code plus one because we are in the U.S. Or email us at alphachat at ft.com. Go to ft.com forward slash alpha chat where you can find show notes to this episode and all other prior episodes. And please, please, please go to Apple Podcasts uh, where you can leave a review or give us a rating. We really do appreciate that. And we see every single one. So, yeah, thanks. On Twitter, you can find Robin at where can we find you, Robin? At Robin Wig. And I'm at Cardiff Garcia. Finally, Amy Keene is the amazing producer and editor of this podcast. Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat.